there's this idea that like you know this is the end of the line america's doomed uh you know this is we're, we're reaching levels of authoritarianism that should be considered impossible and i'm like guys you have no idea what authoritarianism is so my mother is venezuelan and oh, i yeah. had many people explain to me over the years why chavez was wonderful and uh, my my cousins who had to flee from their lives from his regime were wrong and bigoted is there not a part of you that when you hear this you're kind of feel the need for violence toward these people <laughs> <laughs> no, because i'm not you, joking at all michael you can what, literally feel my piss boiling whenever they talk to me my own family they were one of these so-called kulaks and uh, my grandmother's little brother starved to death because of what was happening so uh, there's just so many receipts of of just uh, uh and not to mention the gulags of course of atrocities that so many people whose names we will never know have been forgotten and i'm like you know over my dead body is this going to be swept under the rug of history Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant and returning guest today is a man of many skills and talents, but primarily he's an author and uh, his latest book is called White Pill. Michael Malice, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you so much, guys. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, it's great to have you back on the show, man. Uh, you've written this book. Uh, attempting to get people to think more positively about their own lives by highlighting all the horrible shit that happened in the 20th century, particularly in the country uh, from which you and I both come. Uh, what was your thinking behind doing that? Um, I th I, what I was shocked at, and I would love to hear your guys' feedback about this, is that the Cold War was the absolute primary foreign policy concern for both the UK and the US for several decades. And now it's been won so decisively that people have forgotten it even happened. Uh, they, the Soviet Union is almost this historical asterisk. I mean, there's many movies about World War II in the States. You know, we talk about the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. But the fact that this was the complete, utter victory over an indisputably evil empire is just kind of a shrug. And it's just odd to me, especially given what the people of Eastern Europe had to go through, and many other countries, of course, had to go through for so long that their story is being swept under the rug, especially when this is something that occurred within our lifetimes. So it's, it's just very odd to me. And, um, you know, the more research, you know, as you said, I'm from there, the more research I did, the more I realized how poorly understood the atrocities of the Soviet Union are. Maybe perhaps there isn't a nice narrative like with World War II. Um, and I'm like, all right, well, people need to know more about this. And I'm someone who tells stories. So I'm going to put a stop to that. And so I did. Mm. Uh, but particularly, I mean, we can talk about the Cold War and stuff because that really is very interesting, particularly given what's going on now. Sure. But one of one of the interesting things to me was the approach you've taken, which is kind of similar to the approach I took in my book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Again, trying to explain to people like things haven't always been the way they are and things in most parts of the of the rest of the world have not been anything like as comfortable as as what we enjoyed and what we enjoy today. Uh, why do you think that's such an important message right now? Well, I, I think for a personal level, you and I could both speak to that. This is this is what we went through. This is what our families went through. But something that really drives me crazy, and, and I don't know if this is the case in British politics, here in American politics, especially among conservatives, there's this idea that, like, you know, this is the end of the line. America's doomed. 
uh, you know, this is, we're, we're reaching levels of authoritarianism that should be considered impossible. And I'm like, guys, you have no idea what authoritarianism is. And frankly, despite having written, you know, the book on North Korea as well, I didn't really have a good idea of how authoritarianism works and how pervasive it is in, in Prague. There's something called the Museum of Communism, which I sent my protege to visit because they have some really funny captions uh, because it's not written in a respectful manner. It's you know very derisive about what the Prague people experienced. And that was the moment I realized that what we went through, you know, our families went through is the pervasiveness of it all. Like if in the States or the UK, you hate Trump or Boris Johnson or woke ideology, you can turn it off, listen to sports, music, read any book you want. But there was nowhere else for them to go in these countries. Everything, everything, music, sports, the news, the television program, your friends had to be perceived through the filter of politics. And what that does to a people psychologically is something I think for all of us, uh, it's very hard to wrap our heads around, but it's very important to try to grapple what that reality is like. Michael, do you think part of the problem is that we're simply not educated on the evils of communism? So when people see communist heroes, like Che Guevara on a T-shirt, they go, oh, that's a freedom fighter. When actually, if you scratch the surface, the Cuban regime were pretty brutal, to put it mildly. I think, and that's by design, I'll put on my tinfoil hat for this, because I think Western media outlets, and this is something I cover extensively in this book, had so much blood on their hands, and they ran so much interference, not for communism as an ideology, which we can understand, okay, someone has this worldview, they're promoting it, that so on and so forth, but for literally Stalin and, and the atrocities. And, you know, there's a great movie called Mr. Jones about how Gareth Jones, who'd been a British reporter, uh, got out of the train a few stops earlier and exposed what was going on in the Holodomor with the starvation of the Ukrainians. And it wasn't just that this was being kept quiet by Western sources, is that he was personally derided as, you know, a liar, someone who's uh, kind of had these prejudices against the Soviet Union. So decade after decade, this wasn't just World War II, where it's like, all right, we got to team up with Stalin to fight Hitler. We could wrap our heads around that argument. But even before that, you know, they were making so many excuses and not just excuses, but advocating for the idea that the Soviet Union is the nation of the future. And one of the cover girls on the book is Emma Goldman, you know, who was a violent anarchist who believed in bloody revolution in her own words. She got deported to the USSR. She fled with her partner in crime, Alexander Berkman. And, and very famously, she was in London, uh, you know, after they left. And, she, you know, when she was giving a talk, standing ovation, right? Red Emma's here. You know, she was the, the OG when it comes to, uh, you know, red radicalism. And she goes, guys, these, this is not a nation for the workers. What they're doing to these workers is things the czar would never think of. And by the time she was done, you could hear a pin drop. And they were telling her who had just left, who had sat down with Lenin personally and said, this isn't what we're supposed to be for. We're supposed to be free speech for free speech and for the workers. They told her she didn't know what she was talking about. So that kind of idea of people in the West, these intellectuals, influencers, from the comforts of their own home, feeling comfortable explaining to people people who were there that they don't know what they're talking about and how things really are is a trend that I think has continued to this day in very disturbing ways. And I completely agree with you, Michael. So my mother is Venezuelan and oh, I yeah. had many people explain to me over the years why Chavez was wonderful. And uh, my, my cousins who had to flee from their lives from his regime were wrong and bigoted. Yeah, I, I have to ask you, do you, is there not a, I'm not joking at all. Is there not a part of you that when you hear this, you're kind of 
feel the need for violence toward these people? <laughs> no, because uh, I'm not you, joking at all, Michael. You can well, literally so feel my piss boiling whenever they talk to me. But it, it, it came to the point in my own life where I realized that talking with these people, it, it wasn't going to lead to anything because they had their own way of looking. They had their own way of thinking. And when Venezuela ine inevitably collapsed and we have 96% of the population living in poverty, they've all moved on to the next cause. And the reason that socialism didn't flourish is because it wasn't allowed to flourish. It's the same old narrative. Yeah, but it's, it's not just the narrative which we could all wrap our heads around. It's that oh, you don't know what you're talking about, and I do. And it's yeah. like, because well, I read, I don't know what the newspaper would be equivalent there, but I read the New York Times, I read the Washington Post, therefore I'm an informed citizen. It, it's just unconscionable. Uh, and, and again, there are case after case of, you know, uh, authors, uh, vice presidents, and reporters who went to these places and feel comfortable pontificating uh, to their lessers about what things are really like over there. Well, wasn't there this, uh, is it Durante, the New York Times journalist who got, he got a Pulitzer for basically covering up all the atrocities that were happening in the Soviet Union? Technically, he got the Pulitzer earlier because he also got an interview with Stalin. So that wasn't why he got the Pulitzer. But the headline was Russians not starving, merely hungry or something to that effect. <laughs> the headline of it's not... I, 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 I get why you laugh, but it's like these are millions of people who are starved to death intentionally. And, and the thing that's really scary, he said, oh, there's there's no famine, nor is there likely to be. And then he says, the Russians are merely tightening their belts. Well, you know why you tighten your belt? Because you don't have food. That, I mean, mm. it's not a fashion statement. They're not doing the treadmill. And the way the which I didn't even realize how the Holodomor more worked, you know, they want to requisition all the grain. They wanted to break the kulaks. So they would go to your home in the middle of the night. And if you weren't gaunt, if you weren't losing weight, they knew you were hiding food. Your own body would betray you. It was the law that you had to starve. And, and when Gareth Jones, the reporter, went to these villages, they, to they all told him the same thing. We're doomed. There's no food coming. And, and it's, it's a, a really kind of a, um, something that's been swept on the rug historically. And, and thankfully, I could discuss it a little bit more in this book. Yeah, right. And uh, we, we actually did an interview with a very good historian of the Soviet Union called Giles Yudi. And in that, I talked about my own family. They were one of these so-called kulaks. And uh, my grandmother's little brother starved to death because of what was happening. So when we laugh, we laugh uh, because the line is ridiculous. But oh, no. of course, these are terrible tragedy. Uh, there's no one would, would, would underplay that. Um, well, I got to um, say, well, I got to be pedantic. Yeah. It's not a tragedy. This was done. But, you know, right. this wasn't mm. some, for, you know, some hurricane or, you know, like some typhoon. This was an atrocity. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point, Michael. But as well, you know, the, the journalists who went against the grain, even very famous left-leaning journalists like Malcolm Muggeridge, I mean, it didn't help their careers, did it? No, he talks, I talk, yeah, they, you know, when he, when you go against the kind of uh, narrative that your industry is putting forward, um, you know, they asked Malcolm Margaret years later because he was a hardcore lefty. I think his dad yeah. was in the Fabians. Uh, so he had the, the pedigree. And they asked him, well, what happened to you as a result of exposing this? Because he used a diplomatic satchel to get the information out of the Soviet Union. He goes, oh, me? I couldn't get work. So the, the fact that their depravity and malfeasance was exposed by one of their own uh, they knew to seek retribution. And that's certainly the case nowadays when people in certain industries uh, step out of line their, um, uh, their techniques to make sure that that doesn't happen twice.
And Michael, what do you make of, of the situation now where uh, in the West quite often people, and look, there's some evidence that societies have become more, you referred to earlier, more authoritarian, and people go, oh, this is just like, you know, this is almost like a digital gulag, and, you know, mm. this is Soviet. How do you feel about people doing that? Yeah, the, when Mike Mike Bloomberg was mayor of New York City and he had a ban on how big the sodas you can get at 7-Eleven was, and uh, Mike Huckabee, who was governor of Arkansas at the time, his daughter just became Arkansas governor, said, this is like North Korea. And I'm like, I, I assure <laughs> you, uh, the size of the soda is not the issue in North Korea. So I, I think these glib um, hand wavings are, are things that I find uncomfortable. Um, mm. And again, this is one of the reasons I wrote this is because... People think authoritarianism is just like, okay, you have to go to school and they teach you stupid things and you can't speak out about politics and everything else is fine. And if that was the extent of it, I, I'm kind of almost fine with that, right? We're talking about living from morning to night in constant fear and at night you're waiting for the doorbell to ring when you don't know who's going to turn who against each other. And the techniques that the Soviet Union used to make sure people broke which I you know discuss extensively in this book were very clever. I mean they 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 were very smart about how because people sit here and think okay there's nothing you can do to me that's going to make me kind of you know spill or sign a confession I didn't sign. Well, you have children, don't you? So mm. when you have this kind of collective guilt and when human life and human rights don't exist, you know very quickly, no matter how tough you are, let's get your kid in front of you. And see what you're going to confess to. You you had Jews right. confessing to plotting with Hitler, you know, since before Hitler was in power. It was just absolute madness. Yeah. Well, this was, uh, and again, it, it doesn't even have to be as extreme as like we're going to kill your child. I mean, I talk about this in my book. My my grandfather uh, said some things about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and within a very short period of time, him and his wife lost their jobs, and both their children were kicked out of university. Right. So this collective punishment system, and this is in the 80s, so the period you're right. talking about earlier, it would have been way worse. And of course, you had a system, if you were uh, married to an enemy of the people, quote unquote, that was a crime. It was a crime to be related to somebody who's an enemy of the people. It, it gets much worse than that, because here's what happens. You're, uh, you're arrested, Constantine, right? Then mm. your wife is arrested for being an enemy of the people. What's she going to do? She can't really plead innocent. But right away, your kids are now orphans overnight. Now, the thing yeah. is, what happens to these kids? No, uh, this happened to Gorbachev when he was a kid because one of his grandfathers was arrested. And in his words, his house became a plague house. Now, none of the other kids are going to play with that kid. The teachers are going to make it a point to distance themselves from that kid. In fact, there's a story in the, in the book where, you know, one girl who overnight became an orphan because her parents were vanished. She had a family friend. They took her in, but he went to someone high up in, I believe it was Moscow or St. Petersburg and said, what do we do about this kid? And it's like, look, do you want to be associating with the daughter of the enemy of the people? Because that makes it look like you're uh, conspiring with them. So they had to put her on the street. So there was hand wringing in the Kremlin because all these kids are understandably killing themselves now because not only are they orphans, like no one will talk to them or associate with them. So again, no, no matter how bad we all think it can get, there's more layers to hell uh, in this you know, evil place. And, and it, what it shows as well is that the understanding that people have in the West of these issues, they can't possibly comprehend. Because in a way, Michael, to give them their due, unless you've experienced it, unless you've heard the stories 
unless you've been around people who've experienced that, it's impossible to, to understand. It just is. The life of constant fear. So one of my friends, Henry, who grew up in, in Venezuela and is Venezuelan, he came over to the UK and he went for a meal with my family. My, my parents are now very old. And Henry was talking and my dad said to him, Henry, you're going to need to speak louder. I can't hear you. And he said, I'm sorry, but in Venezuela, we're used to whispering. Oh, yeah. So and, you and don't even notice. You just adapt constantly. And as a result, I don't think that you can read about this, but unless you experience it, it's impossible to understand. That's the tagline on the back of the book. It's almost impossible to convey to a free people what it is like to live in a totalitarian dictatorship. Let me give you the closest parallel even I could feel was when I visited North Korea. And mm. the thing is, if you think about your environment, right, you think about the wall behind you, the neon, your clothes, who you're talking to, the books in your room, the microphones, when every aspect is different and alien, that some of that environment is something completely impossible to describe because like the difference for a fish between being in like in a river or being in a fish tank, it affects every single aspect of everything you do. And that, co that kind of combination is so much bigger than some of its parts. And again, even having only spent one week in North Korea, it's almost impossible for me to just articulate what it's like to be in a country where there's no internet and no mm. access to the outside world. I can kind of explain it. It's like being in a dream state where you're like kind of floating in this country that's, you know, devoid of attachment to anything outside itself. But to actually physically be there, to wake up and not know what day it is and not have it really matter because you don't have news. Every day is pretty much the same as the other other than the weekends. We don't know what that's like. And here's the other thing that I think for those of us, you know, the level of horrors, they all knew they can't leave. So, you know, there's many of these countries, even war-torn countries, right? You know, the Blitz, you knew this is going to end at some point, right? You knew this is, you know, temp even COVID, this is not going to go on forever. They were told from birth, this is your reality and there's nowhere else to go. And don't you even think about trying to get out of here because if you do, someone is going to turn you in and your family. Right. And this is one of the things that I think um, when, when people talk about this in the West, it's like the easiest thing, the easiest line to give people to get them to understand what those societies were like was those countries had borders to stop people getting out. <laughs> I mean, that tells you enough, I think, about everything that was going on inside. We have borders. We argue all the time in the West. You know, we've got to enforce the borders because people want to come in. Those countries had borders to prevent people leaving. And also, I, I talk extensively about the Berlin Wall in this book because this mm. fell during my lifetime and I didn't really appreciate why this was such a big deal and what a kind of monument to obscenity the Berlin Wall was. Uh, the idea of encasing. It, I, th there's this great line from a historian in the book where I go, it's, it's kind of deranged. It's the only prison on earth where the people who are imprisoned are the ones who are free because they, you know, they encased West Berlin entirely, but they called it the official term. The East German term was the anti-fascist rampart and it worked great. Not one fascist even tried so much as to get into East Berlin, but mm -hmm. it's not just that you couldn't leave. They would also lie. You know, it's it, like, you wouldn't want to leave because on the far side of the iron curtain, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the clan runs everything and people are homeless and they're starving. We have it so great here. There's this great scene um, 
in the late 80s when Boris Yeltsin, who was high up in the USSR at the time, went to Houston to visit NASA. And as a side trip, he stopped into a supermarket. The supermarket's still there. And he's walking around. And this isn't filled with dignitaries and senators. These are like school teachers and truck drivers. And they're, the food he's seeing, he'd never seen in his life. And he's flying back to uh, the USSR via Miami. And on the plane, he has his head in his hands. And he's like, they had to lie because otherwise people would understand how bad we have it. So again, it's not just that there's a, a narrative or they're twisting the truth. There's no other way that like they knew how bad it was and they lied constantly 24-7. And frankly, that cynicism toward the media was one of the things that broke down this totalitarian nightmare. So, Michael, that being the case, does it worry you the cynicism that we have towards the media in our societies where we no longer trust the media? It's the best thing ever. These people are, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, I, it's, it, it's, it's very healthy when you're trying to construct a narrative based on lies when mm. people don't believe what you say. And there's this amazing story, like the story of the Prague, the um, Velvet Revolution in, in Prague, in, in Czechoslovakia is just, just a beautiful, heartwarming story. And, and people can look, read about it in the book, but there was the, the police started beating protesters, men, women, and children, just, they wouldn't let them leave. They're beating them near Wenceslas square. And rumor went out and it was reported on like voice of America and other outlets that there was a student, I'm blanking on his name, let's suppose Christopher Smith, was killed by the cops. And then the protests got bigger. And there were two students by this name at the universities. And the authorities were like, he's fine. And they were and they brought out both of them from the cameras to go, look, look, Christopher Smith is fine. And they were telling the truth. But after decades, no one believed them. They really mm. thought that they killed this kid. And the protests got bigger and bigger. And a uh, spoiler alert, the entire government resigned and it was a peaceful transition. That's why it's called the Revol Revolution to a liberal democracy, which remains to this day. So there are many stories where the cynicism towards those who lie and oppress their own for a living uh, was the healthiest response. And Michael, let's say that there's a young kid watching this. And by kid, I mean somebody in their teens, in college. And, you know, they're, they're, you know they, they believe in, in communism and all the rest of it. What would you say to this kid? who may be listening and may be open to being persuaded? Um, don't believe your teachers. Uh, the, this is where the poisoning starts, the universities. And I would tell them to, I mean, this is one of the reasons I wrote this book. You know, it, it's to explain what this was like, what this really means in practice. And, you know, there's this argument you, you guys are very familiar with, I'm sure, that this wasn't real communism. Real communism hasn't been tried. It's like Lenin and Trotsky were true believers. They were the kind of evangelists. They were the prophets that, all right, we're going to not put anything, get, get anything in our way. We're not going to be weak. We're not going to be middling. This is our chance to kind of do full bore communism. And, and they succeeded. And what this book demonstrates and history demonstrates is what that actually means in practice. And again, it's not, you don't take my word for it or, or someone, some conservative it was Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman who were hardcore, hardcore, violent revolutionaries who saw it firsthand. And they were the ones who uh, kind of warned about it in the West to completely deaf ears. Hey, KK, do you like spring cleaning? No. In my country, men who were caught spring cleaning were executed. 
and it was correct decision. Why? Cleaning weakens men. To fight bear, you must be dirty and hairy like real men. When you can no longer defend women from bear attack, you're useless. Well, that escalated quickly. Bear attacks can escalate quickly. Okay. Well, Manscaped are here to change the way blokes take care of ourselves and groom with the Performance Package 4.0. Inside this ball care bundle, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker, Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your goodies. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is putting my goodies in a bag. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is an elite electric trimmer that has advanced skin safe technology. This trimmer is designed to trim hair on loose skin. It will have them looking good and feeling good. Your testicles will look like Boris Johnson the day he got fired. That's a fair point. The Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer provides skin safe technology which helps reduce nicks, snags and tugs in those delicate nose and ear holes. By the time this baby is finished with you, you'll have a set of orifices smoother than Vladimir Putin's head. Never make this joke again. I want to return to my family someday. Sorry, mate. They'll also throw in a travel bag and a pair of boxes free of charge. Get 20% off and free shipping with manscaped.com when you use our code TRIGGER20. That's 20% off and free shipping when you use our code TRIGGER20. Go to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping. And Michael, that's one of the reasons I'm excited about your book being out because uh, I see kind of in our space, whatever that space is, we a lot of people have spent a lot of time focusing on what's gone wrong. You know, postmodern neo-Marxism or, or whatever it is, people go, okay, this has happened, this has happened, this is what's gone wrong, this is what's going bad, this is what's not working. And like you said, it does lead a lot of people into a kind of dooms space in which they... They feel that, you know, America's over, Britain's over, the West is tired, you know, we, we must embrace our new Russian overlords or whatever mm. is the, the ending of that, that process. And that has caused, I think now in, in me and in lots of other people now, I feel a, a search for a positive vision of the future. What it, people are starting to think about, okay, we've, we've identified what the problems are with wokeness. We've identified what the problems are with the two mainstream parties and the establishment, et cetera. It's, the media are clearly lying to us a lot of the time, et cetera, right? And your book is A, okay, I mean, good. As we say in Russian, everything is understood in comparison. Yeah. So the comparison is useful. Now what? Well, I, I'm, I'm glad I can speak to you guys about this specifically as opposed to Americans because <laughs> the British had this before. 1979, the, uh, the British Empire went from the sun never sets in the British Empire because it spanned the globe to not having mm-hmm. electricity. You had, they had yeah. like four hours a day of electricity. The garbage in Leicester Square was two meters tall. Uh, it was a given that the best days of Great Britain were behind her and that the country is kind of a historical joke at this point, right? It was called and, the sick man of Europe, yeah. Right. And someone who is very controversial in, in your country, um, namely Margaret Thatcher, said, I can't bear the idea of Britain in decline. Now, she's a very controversial figure, but you can't dispute that Great Britain in 2023 is in a far better place than Great Britain was in 1979. And the idea that Great Britain is kind of a joke and over I don't think it's something people say with any kind of credence anymore. So this is an example in your country in not that long ago where people were saying the same thing and with far more reason. 
Uh, there was there seemed to be no mechanism to turn the ship around. It's got to be managed decline. Uh, you know, we had our run, pip pip old chap, and now it's just kind of we're slowly drifting toward the grave, and that ship got turned. So that that's one example. But the other example is again, why do people ascribe the villains of the day to be omnipotent and omniscient? You know, one of the points that I make in this book and that I constantly talk about is the enemy class is not full of impressive people. These are mm. Rishi, whatever his name is, I don't pronounce his last name, <laughs> and Sir Kier. These aren't gods. You know, these aren't these amazing figures. And, uh, you know, I sure wouldn't want to go up against them in an argument. Like, are you crazy? These, <laughs> these you know, so when you, you have this idea that, you know, the people who are opposed to liberty and freedom and human dignity are unstoppable. When you look at who these people are, they're far closer to to snakes than to gods. And I'm not saying at all that they wouldn't do the worst atrocities possible. That's part of the point of the book. But the point being, they don't always get their way. Why are you allowing them to lie to you and say, we're always going to win? Because that's all they do is lie. At some point, I'm going to get what I want. Or at the very least, there's the possibility. And as long as there, as there is the possibility of victory, people have to fight for it. Yeah, and one of the things that you are highly critical, or I would say things or worldviews, is cynicism. You hate a cynic, don't you, Michael? Explain I, to me why. I think it's the worst. I don't, I don't want to say worst, okay. But it, it's really one of the most like kind of unconscionable perspectives for people to have. First of all, it's this kind of like too cool for school. Everything sucks. Like it, it's true. 90% of movies suck. 90% of comedians suck. 90% of books suck, possibly including my own. But you're telling me no books are good. No movies inspire you and change your life. No conversation makes you a better person. No program uh, makes you think about our world and our place in it. So when you're a cynic, you preemptively excuse yourself from achieving anything or hoping mm -hmm. for anything because it's just like you hand wave it away. And it's an easy trap to fall into. I think it is very much uh, perpetrated by the media because it allows people to just kind of you're cool if you're a cynic but if you have hope or optimism or anything is sunny that's juvenile or illegitimate or kind of a joke and that's a very useful technique to encourage people to stop fighting for their values and to stop hoping for things better for themselves and their families and i think it's regardless of someone's politics if you're surrounded by this, and I think this is a very uh, constant, you can speak to this also, I'm sure, it's a very Russian perspective. Because mm -hmm. I remember very vividly, you know, there's this show called Russian Dolls, which was the ver Russian version of... Um, oh man, um, it was so good. I remember the whole family sitting down to watch it. I talk about it all the time because it was the first time you could see Russian politicians being satirized and, and made fun of. And, uh, that, and it's never happened before or since, really, mm -hmm. properly. Wait, there might be a different show then. Here in the States, it's our version of Jersey Shore with with a bunch of Russians. Oh, in right. <laughs> I, I was thinking about a different one. In the 90s, we had this show called Hookley, uh, Puppets. Oh, yeah. It was uh, yeah. called The Spitting Image. Anyway, sorry. But the point uh, I brought it up is there was this scene where this girl, she'd been struggling. She, she had like eight different majors. She didn't know what to do. She took an aptitude test. And it said lawyer. And she's like, oh, you know what? I enjoyed my pre-law classes. So she's, there's a scene she's down with her mom. They're getting manicures or whatever. And she goes, mom, you know, I finally figured out I want to be a lawyer. First reaction, how are you going to pay for it? And she has this complete breakdown. It's just like, why is it whenever I have something positive in my life, your first reaction is to look for a flaw, to look for a problem. What, people don't know how to pay for law school? This is an un And she just loses it. 
And I could really relate to that because this kind of like always looking for the darkness, always looking for the way out to give up is so pernicious. Whereas opposed to me and, and the point of the book and just I, I think people should fight in general is y- there's the possibility that you're going to achieve your dreams. And I got to tell you, I failed a lot in my life and I'm fine with it. And I'm sure you guys have too, because mm-hmm. as long as I gave it a good college try and I don't always get what I want, I feel happy and I can meet my maker knowing I did my best with what I had. Yeah, well, this is such, such an important point. And I think one of the reasons that these uh, cynical narratives are so uh, pernicious and so common is, I don't know, have you ever heard of this experiment where like they put a, a, a rat in a cage with an electrified floor? And as lo- and it gives us the rat an electric shock with a certain regularity. And what they found was, as lo- if you put a button in the cage that the rat can turn off the electric shock, the rat will carry on, you know, trying to stop the electric shocks. But if there is no button and they can't control its environment, then the rat just lies down and takes it, basically. And I think a lot of these responses that people are, are tempted to go into, they're a feeling uh, of a lack of control. Yeah. They're a feeling like there is these, and, and both left and right have a version of it. You know, to the left, it's systemic, whatever, it's structures of oppression, it's the patriarchy, it's whatever. And to the sort of more anti-woke right, there's Davos and Klaus Schwab is personally, you know, taking over mm-hmm. their life or whatever it is. And, and it's a way of basically saying, I don't control anything. I can have no impact. I'm just going to sit here and be resigned and cynical. Yeah, I, I I was on some conservative podcast and they were talking about how Joe Biden is putting the last nail in the coffin in America. I'm like, we're one nail away from America being destroyed. What does that even mean, destroyed? Right? And it's just, and if you your perspective is that the Biden administration in two years uh, and 51 Democratic senators can destroy America, well, it's a wrap and get out of this country because you hate America. Because to me, it's just absurd that you know a country as prosperous as we are, which certainly has problems. Let's let me not but sweep it off the rug, but to say that we're two years away from absolute our destruction to me is absolutely crazy to the point of being dishonest. And it's also these narratives are highly addictive. Mm. We yes. all know, and we're not going to mention any names, certain channels that feed and fuel a doomsday narrative. They get millions of views. And a lot of we the time, that, yeah, I know, <laughs> everything's shit. The Black uh, Pill, wait, <laughs> I, I, I should change the book title, like we're doing yeah. the Black <laughs> Look yeah. how shit things can get and it's coming to America right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get your copy. But they put out the same narrative again and again. There doesn't seem to be very little variety in the output. You look at it and even a cursory glance will make it, well, once you analyze it, you realize that a lot of these arguments don't have a lot of merit. Yet people tune in. They love it, don't they? Oh, and then you could have. And the thing is, then they can say that they're being rational because they could open up any newspaper and find bad news and be like, look, Mm. look, I'm not being irrational. The newspaper validates my perspective. So it does become a self-fulfilling cycle. Um, I think COVID certainly allowed people who are, you know, neurotic or anxious or depressed now to externalize their neurosis because now it's not calling from inside the house. It's the whole country or the whole world that's experiencing this. And how can you expect me to have any hope or vision of happiness? So I, I think it's a very useful technique if you want to conquer a people or a peoples to convince them that their victory over you is impossible. And then you don't have to fight because they could just go home shrug their shoulders and be like, all right, you know, I can't win. 
I have no hope. The people I'm against are too powerful or have been around too long or control too many institutions. And I'm just going to kind of, you know, watch sitcoms, have a pint, and uh, that's the end of that. And I, I think it's it's a very smart move on their part. Uh, but I really hope that the people listening to this don't fall into that trap. And you don't have to be this, you know, braveheart freedom fighter, but you can certainly be a better person tomorrow than you are today. We all have that power within us. You know, not everyone is going to be Joe Rogan, but we could still be successful podcasters as an example. Uh, so when people put it in that perspective, you have that kind of motivation to, you know, do something about the values that you hold. And also, not all of those actions have to be public actions, I right. think. You know, when, when you, 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 not everyone's Joe Rogan and you could be a successful podcaster, but you could also just have kids and raise them well, or you could make a difference in the job that you do, whatever that job is. And, and that in, in itself will not only make the world better, it actually is going to make your life a hell of a lot better versus sitting there and listening to yet another three-hour conversation about how civil war is coming, you know what I mean? And it, it's also, here's the other thing with cynicism. It's very important for cynics to make sure everyone around them is cynical. It's almost like a zombie apocalypse. Because as soon as you have one example that disproves your narrative that everything sucks and we're doomed, your entire hypothesis falls apart. So psychologically, it is necessary for them when they are surrounded by people who are, if not thriving, at least going in that direction, to pull the rug out from under them because otherwise they're going to have to do some dark looking in the mirror and they're not going to like what they find. So I very much caution people if you're surrounded by this kind of negativity in your life, especially in casual friends, make sure that this person is more of a benefit than a cost to you because it really is very pernicious and sinister. Michael, do you think part of the problem as well is that people just buy into systems and paradigms way too much. So whatever the system may be, like the college system, they believe that you go to college, you get your college degree, and that your life when you leave will be sorted. And well, life doesn't work like that. Life doesn't happen like that. Just because you get a college degree doesn't mean you're going to get a great job, whatever school you go to. Do you think that's part of the problem as well? Uh, yes, and I think it's by design, and I think it starts in school. Because the whole point of school is to make people as homogenous as possible, to break young spirits. You don't want little boys running around. You want them asking too many questions. You want to le everyone's learning at the same rate as everybody else. Everyone is told that we all kind of basically think the same. These are things that are completely untrue. And it, there's this winnowing effect where if you're kind of challenging the narrative that the teacher at the front of the room, who's more often than not apologies to your audience, uh, if they get offended at this, a mediocre person, uh, you are really kind of taught a very bad lesson very early on. And I think this is intentional because I think schools, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's even worse in the UK than the United States, are there to design to teach kids not to think critically and not to challenge basic assumptions. You can only challenge within a context that is presented as you, you know, the equivalent of setting kids up for the Overton window. Uh, and I think it's very hard at a young age to kind of break out of that and not kind of be under that thumb. Uh, but it, it's something I think that's very, very necessary and that I personally had to do myself as well. Michael, moving on. Well, hold on a second. Are you not going to tell him you're a former teacher? Yeah, yeah I am. <laughs> you, you do the 10 times in every other episode. He slags off teachers. You say nothing. No, Come on, stand up for yourself. He agrees no, with I, me. I do, well, I, I'll back you up. Come on. No, I, I do agree. <laughs> I actually agree with you, Michael. So in the UK, what uh, education has in fact become... It's not, it, I would even say it's worse than that because education has actually become uh, 
Every school is now a factory for data harvesting. Yes. It's not about yeah. teaching. It's about factory. It's a factory for data harvesting. So that when the education minister of the day is questioned by his, uh, his one of his opponents, they can then go, well, look, the, you know, the grammar, the, you know, the kids are writing better by 22 percent. Are they actually writing better? No, not really. You're just teaching them to pass the test, which has little to no value. And it's just basically justifying your job. That's also the problem of education, is that it's now a political football as well. I would just like to say on behalf of everyone here at Trigonometry, we believe there's some very good teachers out there, and we have <laughs> tremendous respect for them, and by no means are we suggesting that you're all terrible. I didn't say all. But, <laughs> you just meant most. But it's not a game of Russian roulette I'd want to play. You're not a big fan of school, Michael, I gather. No, not government schools, especially. I, I don't know how they are in the UK, but here in the United States, this, it's probably the only place that many people experience violence in their lifetimes. Uh, mm. And, and this is kind of this idea that, you know, first of all, everyone learning at the same rate at this, as everyone else is nonsensical. Uh, they, the point of schooling explicitly is to make good citizens. And what that means is people who are servile and obedient. That, that's the, I mean, it's a euphemism for a very pernicious goal uh, and to have everyone basically thinking the same things within narrow parameters. And, and that's how you get a, a you know, powerful state. Michael, here's the thing. It's not also that. It's also to, to give you certain skills for you to be able to access education, the workforce. But I, I take your point. Do you sometimes not worry, though, Michael? And I have this myself, in that your experiences has led you with, to, such, to have such a deep distrust of authority that you worry you can go too far the other way. No, I'm an anarchist. There's no too far. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. I've, I've told, turned the dial up to 11. So you just think to yourself, like, because surely some, we do need some form of government, Michael. Surely we do. In order to make the roads, in order to make sure that, you know, the roads. The trains, were, don't were, say the trains run yeah, yeah. It's about yeah. where they run to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the, you know the, the roads work, you know. The waterworks, whatever the water. else. Do you not think that we need government for that? Without government, how do we have water? <laughs> I mean, my God. <laughs> no, I don't think we need government for any of that. And I think without government, who's going to imprison us in our homes for weeks at a time for no reason? My God, it's it's unconscionable. No, I don't think, I think, first of all, I don't like that term we need because that always means yep. I want. Um, and no, I do not want government at all. I, I, there are, of course, uh, organizations and mechanisms that are important that establish rules and, and regulations within their purview. But in the sense of a government, no, I think uh, government's illegitimate. So, no, so how, how would society work without government? Let's explore society this. Works, uh, this is a kind of a, a sidebar, but society works despite government. Uh, everything that works in society is done voluntarily by people. Adam Smith talked about this at great length, by people fighting for their values, working peacefully with everyone else. It's only when force is introduced into a relationship via private criminals, such as muggers, or public criminals, which are governments, that you have strife and, and uh, um, other things like that. Well, I mean, if you remember, we talked about yeah, yeah. anarchism a lot in mm -hmm. our last conversation, so people can go and go and check out yeah. the full conversation if they want. Um Michael, so, you, I mean, one of the things we talked about is the need for hope and the need for uh, the belief that posit positive things are, are possible. And I appreciate that in your conception, positive change would be to get rid of government. Wait, can, I, wait, sure. can I say one thing? It's not just positive things are possible. This whole book is demonstrating that positive things have happened. 
So mm, this isn't mm. some Pollyanna thing about like, oh, hope for the best. Yeah. We've seen great, extremely positive things happen within our lifetime, but they're not discussed because, as you guys mentioned, they don't fit this doomsday narrative. Well, right. And actually, I mean, you made the point right at the beginning about the Cold War. And maybe this is a good opportunity to come back to it, because I think to answer your question, I think part of the reason is it's kind of like COVID in a way. Once something is bad is over, people just want to move yeah. on. Right. I think that's part of it. Another part of it is that the entity which previously was our enemy in the West, the Soviet Union, no longer exists. Right. And so it was very easy to go, OK, well, that's done now. Let, let's not worry too much. But as we see in terms of what's happening in Ukraine now, you know, things don't it's not like that part of the world suddenly just disappeared or, or all became liberal, beautiful liberal democracies mm -hmm. or whatever. And that legacy, I mean, that's what's happening in Ukraine now is continuing to run, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, one of the points I make is that if someone is, you know, anarchists get accused of being utopians, utopias don't exist, but progress does. Things, great victories happen on a national, uh, international and personal level all the time. And uh, if we want, if we're going to be cynics, we're going to pretend that that's not true. And it's just demonstrably false. Like everyone listening to this has had great victories in their lives, moments where things had been, where your fears, you know, there's this Kind of uh, um, imagine going back in time 10 years ago and talking to yourself and remembering all those fears you had, all those anxieties. Many of them never ended up happening and some of them did. And you know what? You were able to handle them. You were strong enough. So I think that kind of is very important to uh, have in mind to realize. And But the other thing is, I, I think we underestimate how much the media and the academia love war, love bloodshed. Mm -hmm. Because the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union was very largely a peaceful one, you don't have this triumphalism that we stormed Normandy and all these boys lost their lives. And of course, I'm not, you know, kind of dismissing what their accomplishments was and those enormous sacrifices, to be fair. But that story is much more kind of easy to tell in terms of heroism than a bunch of people got together, looked around and said, this is not right. And we're going to do something about it, and we're going to dismantle sometimes against our own will, this enormous edifice that has been built up over the decades. Um, what so about I Rocky IV? <laughs> so, 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 <laughs> touche. So, so, you know, that was one of the reasons I wrote this is because that narrative of the victory of good over evil is not something in popular consciousness, but I think it needs to be, especially as, as you said, uh, Russia and Ukraine are still very much in the news today for obvious reasons. And do you think part of it as well, Michael, is nowadays, I almost feel like because of this slightly, you know, we do see the world through this sort of postmodernist everything is relative lens to some extent. Like you say good and evil, most people couldn't even define what good and evil are anymore. Right. I, well, I don't know about anymore. I think this has been a long time where this idea of good and evil was speaking to earlier is regarded as simplistic or naive or juvenile or 1950s. It's And this was, you know, the, leading up to the last third of the book, the idea was detente because the argument was, okay, look, we tried to fight communism in North Korea, that was in the Korean War, that was a draw. We tried to kind of uh, Cuba, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Vietnam War was a disaster for the West. The rational, sane, informed person knows the Soviet Union isn't going anywhere. Uh, we have to make our peace with it. This is going to be a two-polar world for millennia. Star Trek had checkoff because even in the far-flung future, it's going to be the Americans and the Russians. 
And Ronald Reagan, who became president in uh, elected in 1980, sat down in the late 70s and he said to his colleague, he goes, do you want to hear my strategy for the Cold War? It's simple and some might say simplistic. We win, they lose. And, you know, for him and, and Margaret Thatcher with the home office, when she, or excuse me, the foreign office, when she was dealing with Gorbachev, they told her these changes are cosmetic. They're not going anywhere. You don't know what you're talking about. You have to be realistic. And realism means you have to accept that this is going to be two superpowers in perpetuity. And my favorite moment, well, not my favorite up there, is when Lech Walesa, who was the head of Poland, was talking to Helmut Kohl, who was the head of West Germany. And Lech Walesa goes, you know, I don't think the Berlin Wall is going to be around for much longer. I mean, the way things are changing so, so quickly. And Helmut Kohl laughs in his face and he goes, you're young you don't understand how these things work. This is going to be a long process. It fell the next day. And Helmut Kohl says, I'm at the wrong party and got on a plane and got his ass out of Warsaw. So there's so many moments in this book when educated, smart, and cynical people are like, you can't expect things to get better. Or if they are going to get better, it's just kind of putting a bandage on a greater wound. This disease is going to be eternal. We've tried everything we had and nothing's going to change. And things happened gradually and then suddenly. That's so interesting because as you were speaking that, I was thinking kind of looking 10, 15 years into the future. And uh, I don't think, you know, five, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, anyone in the West would have really given half a shit about the leader of Russia dying, for example. Okay, well, they've got a new one called Mm. Boris again. Great. You know, who cares? (laughs) Right. But now that would be like a very significant moment. Right. And that is going to happen in the next 10, 15 years, almost certainly, or at least there will be a change of leadership for sure. So we're kind of going to a world in which things really are starting to matter again in a, in, in a, in a very bad way, but also in, in, a, in a very significant way. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to push back a little towards the, the late 70s, early 80s. You know, Reagan kept trying to have um, summits with the Soviet Union, but the leaders kept dying on him because yeah. there was mm-hmm. one old man after another, you know, uh, and he didn't really know what to do about it. And then when Gorbachev comes in, he was the first Soviet leader to be born after the creation uh, in 1917 of, the, of what became the USSR. And this was a radical change in a direction that everyone listening to this, I, I believe, would very much be in favor of. So it certainly is the case that leadership does matter. And, you know, when Putin goes away, the the next leader could be worse, most certainly, or it could be someone who's, you know, better or who knows even what those terms mean in this context. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's interesting how forgotten uh, uh, this whole story was. And, and I think that's just completely uncommon. And it's just what, what really bothers me isn't just necessarily the Cold War, because that's kind of high politics. What's being forgotten is the oppression that these people went through, the, the secret police, the show people were put on trial and forced to denounce their own families and admit to things that were literally impossible. Oh, I met Trotsky at this hotel, even though the ho- even though the hotel no longer had existed. And then you had the reporters, you know, defending these trials. There were so many signatories to these letters in the West saying we need to adopt the ways of Stalin and they have free speech there and you don't know what you're talking about because you're trapped by the bourgeoisie. So there's just so many receipts of, of just, uh, of, and not to mention the gulags, of course, of atrocities that so many people whose names we will never know have been forgotten. And I'm like, you know, over my dead body, is this going to be swept under the rug of history? Michael, does it, does, 
the experiences of your family and the experiences of writing this book, does it make you hypervigilant within your own country as to your own freedoms being eroded? I don't know, but it makes me hypervigilant about the nature of evil. Because Americans have this idea that evil is someone with weird facial hair banging the desk and foaming at the mouth. And what happens in these countries, and I'm sure you guys can speak to this as well, is it's these little bureaucrats, these absolute mediocre people, just just the bottom of the barrel, who are put in positions of power simply because they're following the party line. And they will do everything to maintain that power and lord it over you. Like, you know, just it's it's the it's the person when you want to go to the hospital and get medicine and he's the one guy standing between you and getting medication for your family. And he's going to make you tap dance because this is his opportunity to feel like a big shot. The best example of this was Ceausescu, you know, who is the head of Romania. And in any other country, you know, if you take one look at this guy, the complete simpleton, he'd be some kind of mail clerk who'd be befuddled when the address says, you know, 73 Smith Avenue, but it's 73 Smith Street, and he wouldn't know what to do about it and just be kind of crapping his pants. But this guy was given absolute power and was praised, you know, from sunrise to sunset in this country. And what happened to the Ceausescu's in Romania is, you know, one of my favorite stories in this book. Well, right. Uh, they, I, I, this is one of my favorite stories as well, because it kind of shows you the thing that you're talking about, which is things change quickly and they change suddenly, because uh, he formally at least had a 90-something percent approval rating mm. the day he was summarily executed, uh, the day before he was summarily executed uh, after being arrested. So, uh, well, on that positive note, Michael, uh, uh, things can change quickly and suddenly and for the better. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I hope everybody gets to, to read The White Poach. It's a great read. And uh, before we let you go and before we do our questions for our local supporters that they've already submitted, uh, tell us what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that you think we really should be? Uh, the perniciousness of the universities and those who staff them. I think that is where the poisoning starts. Uh, and I'm very gladdened by, in America at least, it went from people uh, thinking the fights in Washington and the government, and then they've shifted to the tactics of the corporate press. But behind them is the last leg of that stool, and that is the university system. And I'm very, very gladdened by this because I think a university staff, uh, professors of the intelligentsia, are as a rule not particularly impressive people uh, and, and just nasty and, and just very small-minded uh, and when we take the fight to them, I think that's when victory will be achieved. And I don't think they're going to be able to put up much of a fight at all because they've never had to defend themselves. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to get your book, if people want to find your other works online, where is the best place to do that? Uh, whitepillbook.com. And I'm on Twitter at Michael Malice. And I apologize in advance for the crap of my social media output and malice.locals.com. <laughs> Uh, awesome, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Uh, guys, head on over to Locals where we're going to ask your questions and you'll get to see the answers and only you'll get to see the answers if you support the show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's always available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. My version of national divorce is uh, Texas regains its sovereignty from the occupying regime in D.C., and everyone else mm -hmm. can fuck off and do whatever they want. <laughs>
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.